Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Element. That's L-M-N-T. I want to talk about three sort of hidden reasons why I love Element. Let's hear it. One, I've noticed that my daughter is now drinking some, and she notices a difference when she goes to practice. She throws an element in her water, she chugs it because it tastes great, and then she actually performs a little bit better practice, she reports. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, no salt. Boom, salt. What's the second thing? Second is that I see a lot of friends spending a lot of time in the sauna which is super cool. People are getting hot. Everyone's talking about it. And guess what they're doing? They're blowing out all of their water and potentially some of their electrolytes. Yeah, myself included, because when we first started doing a lot of long sauning, I would often get a headache. And then now I That's drink fun. an element in the sauna along with a ton of water and I no longer get a headache. Third, we just rolled through a local holiday tradition here. And one of the things I'm noticing is that when people go hard in the paint, oftentimes, and that means alcohol, oftentimes they feel terrible the next day. And you know what happens when they drink Element? They feel less terrible. Now, I don't know what the science is of that, but it turns out that when you get your kidneys going, you start rehydrating, your brain is like, oh, salts, you feel better. Well, I mean, isn't alcohol dehydrating? Look, I don't think that's the issue. <laughs> I'm going to go I mean, with a, neurotoxin. Yeah. But you know what's not a neurotoxin? Element. Element. So look, people, you can get better. Drink some Element. If you want to get some Element, right now you can order a sample pack for just the price of shipping, which is $5 in the U.S. Their sample packs include eight packets, so you can try each of their awesome eight flavors. Go to the readystate.com slash free element. That's free L-M-N-T to check it out. This episode of The Ready State is brought to you by Virtual Mobility Coach. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding, but in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Starad in your pocket. Which obviously everyone needs. I mean, that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre- and post-workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time. And best of all, right now, you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks. So you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are thrilled to reintroduce you to Rachel Balkovic. Just so you know, Rachel is a close member of the family and a pretty extraordinary woman. She's actually serving as her second year as a minor league hitting coach with the New York Yankees. She's the first woman alongside Rachel Folden of the Cubs to hold that title in the history of professional baseball. She's also one of four women entirely that are working in the uniform 
in 2021. She joined the Yankees in 2019 after completing her second master's degree in biomechanics, which we talk about, where she served as an apprentice hitting coach for the national softball team and baseball programs there. She also completed her research for this degree in eye tracking at driveline baseball. And I actually talk with her a lot about how to get Caroline to be a better goalie. It's very interesting. It's nice to have savage friends. Previous to crossing over to be a hitting coach, she spent seven seasons in professional baseball as a strength and conditioning coach for various roles at the Astros and the Cardinals. In addition to her most recent groundbreaking role at the Yankees, she was also the first woman to be hired full-time as a strength and conditioning coach in Major League Baseball. She's sort of like one of my friends who's also Amelia Earhart. Smashing windows. One of the things that I think is particularly of note is that she has a special interest in organizational culture and behavioral psychology as it relates to performance and organizations. And I'll call this here. She will be a general manager one day. Please enjoy our our interview with Rachel. I know you will. Rachel, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Guys, thank you for having me. You are bringing, you're talking to us from Santa Barbara. So where are you right now? And why are you there? And why are you there? Well, I'm in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, it's the baseball off season. So I am going into my sabbatical season, if you will, where I get a little bit of downtime and get to work remotely and kind of get some time to reflect on the season, I would say. Your sabbaticals, so everyone's transparent here. I consider you like a sister. Your sabbaticals are sort of legendary in our circle of friends, but certainly very anomalous (laughs) in the greater sort of strength and conditioning and professional coaching community. Can you just talk for a second when you mean sabbatical and give us some examples of seasons past, because I think it really sets the framework for where you're going, what you're doing. Yeah. So literally I'm, I'm like writing a book that I think is going to be called seasons and sabbaticals. And it's basically about the general scope of my life, which is baseball seasons, which means I work like a maniac for like eight to nine months. And then I have this beautiful like off season where I can really take time and space and literally sometimes a lot of space, as you guys both know, and traveling the world and just get some reflection. And I think it's just the most valuable, you know, thing in the world. So for example, for some of the listeners that don't know me very well, I've gone, spent like a month and a half in Southeast Asia. I lived in a village in Laos for three weeks in like a wooden structure under a mosquito net. A different time, I moved to Amsterdam to do a second master's degree, but really reflecting back on that time, it was to give me a break from baseball and to kind of reflect on where I wanted to go. And that ended up in me transitioning from strength and conditioning to hitting coach and making history with the Yankees. So I guess it's really just about my, my sabbaticals. I used to accidentally stumble upon these great points of reflection. And now I intentionally like buy the plane ticket to the country that I've never heard of and try to just like make myself wildly uncomfortable. And because I know the amazing reflection points that come from that and the ability to create space. Um, And I don't just mean space like, okay, I go to yoga once a week and that's also great. But literally like there is no English. I can't read the alphabet. The letters don't make sense to me. I have no cell service and like I'm by myself. And then the thoughts like really start to flow. So that's what I would say. I try to get out of a sabbatical and I, I do that pretty intentionally as much as I can, but I have a normal job. Well, I don't have a normal job, but I have a job that I have to be somewhere for. So it doesn't happen as often as I like probably. Not to get too philosophical, but don't you think we would all be better off as a human species if we could all take a sabbatical, like if all jobs were set up so that you had this furious period of work and then 
a sabbatical, right? Because it's sort of how like kids' schools are set up. You know, you 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 know, especially when you're in college, you know, you do these like furious finals and then you, but then you have like a month off for Christmas or, you know, you've got a few months off in the summer and you can have a job or go do travel or I, I don't know. I just, I feel like it's, it's a nice way to live life. Yeah. No, let's get philosophical. Cause I, <laughs> I a hundred percent, I couldn't agree more. And that's like why I, when I think about writing a book, I mean, sure. It's some things have happened in my life and like, I would never write a book about hitting or, or strength and conditioning. That's just really not my jam. But I want to write about this concept because there are parts of the world that do it really well. And obviously you you both know Europeans, right? They take the holiday and they take a holiday. I mean, they don't even look at their email. They're like, no, sorry, I'll, I'll email you back in six weeks. And the, I mean, Americans don't do that. And obviously there are other co- parts of the world and cultures that don't do that. And so I've just, I've just seen the benefit, as you mentioned, Juliet, of just the stopping you know, stop the bleeding, like stop the mental carnage, stop the emotional stress and let yourself breathe. And the longer, the better. If it's a year, it's, that's great. If it's a week, great. Like whatever you can get, get it. But yeah, I a hundred percent believe that pretty much 99% of the people living in the United States of America could really benefit from this. And we really don't have it built into many of our careers. I'm just going to still go down this rabbit hole here, Rachel, but I think it's also Partly, you know, because we obviously are owning a company and employing people. And I would literally love nothing more than to say in August, like, hey, here's two weeks, the ready state's closed, go do your thing. But, you know, we we almost feel like we have no choice there because consumers are expecting to continue to consume 24 hours a day and expect people to be on the other end of an email or a chat request or expecting to get their next day shipping from Amazon, right? And so it's like, it really is this big cultural shift that would have to happen to make that possible, which is not just that employers say, go do it, but that consumers say, okay, it's fine. If I can't log into my ready state account, it's okay that I wait two weeks because the ready state staff is taking a much deserved break. Like, Good luck with that. Right. But you know what I'm saying? So, so I, I just think it's like, as an employer, I have to like put it out there that man, as an employer, I would love to say like no one at the ready state works the month of August. Like that would be awesome. I actually wish we could do that, but we can't. There's no way to do it. Well, I think what's interesting- It's not how our economy is set up. You may be hitting on something else that is that, and we're certainly seeing this, and I would be interested in your thoughts on, you're at the real the the intersection of social media for your own self and development, but you're also in the middle of this professional athlete social media thing, team stuff. We're seeing that in coaching- it's difficult to get across complex ideas in 90 seconds, which is considered long format on Google. 60 seconds is how much you have on Instagram, and now 15 seconds on TikTok, right? How do we make sense of the the lack of reflection development time with the fact that people are thinking that they're getting better, but they're doing it in these micro increments. Can I add a, a subtext question to that too? You know, on because you, in addition- you just, Are you trying to swamp my program? No, I'm bro? not trying to swamp it. I just feel like it's part of this. It's an addition to your question, which is, you know, when you are going on these, because you are also a brand in and of yourself as a coach and a thinker and someone who's writing books and working with awesome women, which I want to talk about, you're doing all these things. And so even though you're taking a sabbatical from your day job, do you feel like you can take a true sabbatical from like, let's say, keeping up your social media or the other things you're doing that are sort of Rachel specific? Are you able to do that? Or is that also not possible? And then whatever Kelly said as well. You guys just asked me like five questions, so I'm going to get to 
<laughs> and I have follow-ups, so get ready. I'm going to combat you on this. I really think that the Ready State and every other company could do this, but it takes teaching your consumers. So like you guys are a health company, you know, like people go to you to feel better, move better. I'm making this up. I don't know your exact slogan, but you know, they go to you to, to move better and move pain-free, let's say, but also like this is a part of health. And I really believe that the consumers that you're working with would buy into like, if for some reason you're like, hey, um, not everybody at the ready state is going to be gone for the month of August, but hey, our, uh, I don't know, fill in the blank team is taking two weeks off because we think it's that important for mental health and family. And we hope that you understand that we are about health here and this is how we want to live. Our- and if you, they might even like you more. I mean... I don't know. I would love for you to spend a day in our customer service platform, but I, you know, I hear you. I hear you on that. I hear you. I think there's probably maybe a way to do it, but I would say that we have people are demanding. Let me ask this: <laughs> circling back around to this this idea of the of your wandering and journeying. But I appreciate you for saying <laughs> that. <laughs> in coaching right now, there's a real problem of burnout that I have so. One of my good friends just left his dream job, which is the director of performance at a very successful Australian rules football program, hockey or hockey, rugby in Australia for everyone who doesn't know. And it's theoretically the dream job, but the demands on the professional coach year round are insane. And these directors of development is insane. And if you go to any college weight room, it's not a really healthy environment. We see really unhealthy people who have depression and stress and burnout, do you think your time off, because you're really intentional about this, do you think this would help this problem? Because this is a gigantic problem in the industry. We're seeing people leave or not be sustainable or actually not be good coaches because they're so burned out. Yes. I was waiting for you to finish, but I I couldn't wait to scream yes at the top of my lungs. (laughs) Like, yes, I can't. I mean, honestly, and this is like, no, this is three years in the past. And I would have talked about this in the moment, but I think I can talk about it a little bit with some compassion, but I was in a pretty dark spot when I moved to Amsterdam. So filling in like the listeners, my entire career pretty much has been a rough go, but you know, partly my choice and partly what I've chosen to do and being a woman, blah, blah, blah. But basically I was like in a very, I was burnt out. I was in a tough spot. I definitely felt like I wasn't respected, et cetera. And thank God I sold all of my possessions and I moved to Amsterdam with three suitcases because I think I would have been out of the game if I hadn't have done that. And I slowly felt it probably took two or three months of being out of the profession. And I wasn't ever truly out, right? I was going to get a master's degree and I was working with the Netherlands national teams, but I was out of the, you know, American professional sports. So I was just like, it took peeling back layers, took two or three months of being out of that to feel like, happy again, just as a person. And then a few more months to be like, okay, I know I can get back into baseball and I can do it even better. And I can launch this whole other thing. And I, if I hadn't have done that, maybe I'd be selling insurance. Cause I would be like, well, I, you know, I'm supposed to love my job and I'm supposed to love waking up at four in the morning and I'm supposed to love spending zero time with my family. And by the way, abandoning my own health habits so that I can love working with 18 year old athletes all day long. That's a joke. It's a joke. Like we need space. And again, again, the answer I think is yes, I do think our profession, I just, I do mentorships with young women. I was just talking to a girl who's going to quit the field. She's going to leave the field. And I, 
I really like this young woman, but I told her a year ago, I was like, you got to leave. You got to get out. And now she's like, I'm going to quit strength and conditioning and be a real estate agent. And I'm like, man, you should have taken a breather. (laughs) You should have taken a step back before that happens, you know, before you want to, you know, divorce your wife and you hate your kids and you're 30 pounds overweight and you want to leave the field. So I'm really fascinated by the work you are doing mentoring women. And that was one amazing example. But could you just tell us a little bit more about that? How did you start doing that? Is it a formal thing or is it an informal thing? Like, tell us a little bit more about that because I know you do it and think it's very cool. Thank you. I I love talking to young women, probably like college, mid-20s age. And basically, it started just like anything else does, right? I was getting all these questions and I was very informally asking, answering one-off questions. And then I would ask one, I would answer one question then I'd get five more of the same questions I've already answered 10 other times. So I think it's just, it's like anything, right? It started out very informal, all for free. And I still do a lot of this for free, just answering one-off questions. But because I'd answered the exact same questions, you know, a hundred times, I was like, oh, okay, I can put this into an online course and then over COVID, really, I had more free time in my hands, like like some people had. And I was able to put it into a formal mentorship. So the mentorship is really, it's directed towards career, but obviously like life lessons baked in just about everywhere. So it's really about designing the career of your dreams. And as you both know, the career of your dreams isn't necessarily the job of your dreams. So the, you, the job is one piece, but how do you create a foundation for a career that's sustainable where you're not going to get burnout? Or you have an exit strategy where you're developing over time and you don't, you know, I think a lot of people still have this crazy idea in their minds that they're going to get one job and then they're going to spend 30 years there and then they're going to retire and the company's going to take care of them and give them a pension. And that's just not the world we're living in. So how do you have multiple streams of income? How do you have maybe like even a side business? How do you create that foundation for a career that's a d- true dream career that supports you over a long period of time and fulfills you? It's a really difficult task. And I really love talking to specifically young women to help them kind of get where they're going in that regard. I think that's so cool. You know, one of the things I've been talking about with our girls is not like, what do you want to do when you grow up? But like, what do you want your life to be like? Because I think that's an important question. Like, like, you know, look, if you want your life to be like yachting in the Mediterranean and flying first class, get that you money, might girl. need to pick a job that will allow your life to be like that. Right. And so I think that, you know, that anyway, I really, I love what you're saying and sort of. Are you saying our girls want a yacht? No, I'm just saying, you know, if, if you have, (laughs) what do you want your life to be like? Do you want to spend a lot of time with your kids and have a lot of free time? Then like, you know, maybe you're not going to be someone who makes a million dollars a year and that's a trade off that you're choosing. Right. And that's great. I mean, whatever it may be, but it's like, what do you want your life to look like? Right. And I think that's, you know, I love that you're talking to young, young women about, you know, seeing it differently. And I, and I want to just jump in and say, I really appreciate your distinguishing creating your dream career, maybe not your dream job. <clears throat> because I think people think that the job is going to, I mean, I don't always like my job and I invented my job and I work with all my best friends. <laughs> <laughs> right? And then sometimes I'm like, God, oh, this job, the man is keeping me down. And I realize I'm the man. So <laughs> one of the things I think is, is I want everyone to know about for example, is that you wrapped the season this year. Lisa just Lisa, told me I'm Lisa fired. just fired Kelly. Can I can I come back to work for the rest of this? <laughs> you finished the season this year and then you jumped on an airplane to to North Carolina. Can you just talk about that experience for a second? Because I think 
people think development and personal growth is a passive experience and even sabbatical is like, oh, I just take off time and then all of a sudden I get become a better, more integrated person. It's very much a verb. Can you talk about just as an example what you just did in North Carolina on your own dollar? Yeah, develop, right. Okay, so we all we got all the way back to your question, Kelly, about coaches who are learning in seven seconds. Yeah, the sabbaticals are not vacations. I, I rarely find myself sitting on a beach somewhere like sipping a margarita. I just made that up. I've never actually done that. My sabbaticals are intentional. And when I think about growth, it's it's hard for me. Well, by the way, certifications are really important. Reading books and and getting like edu- formal education in the way that we know it is important. But also I just think of education as this really fluid thing where I do really think that spending three weeks in the village in Laos and teaching English to kids and like living in that really uncomfortable situation for me literally benefits me just as much as a coach as like a certification. I really believe that. So what I just did, um, I flew to North Carolina to visit the UNC women's soccer team and Anson Dorrance, who is a famous coach. Actually, he's probably like a little under the radar, but he should be more famous. I should say he's the head coach of probably what the longest running dynasty in all of sports. Just had 900 wins. 900. I mean, it's actually mind blowing the level of success he's had. And if you say Anson Dorrance, not that many people know about him, you know, but it's, it's women's sports, it's women's soccer. I don't really know the exact reason, but anyway, so obviously I want to learn from somebody who has not only built up UNC women's soccer and kept it there for 30 years, but also he built up women's soccer internationally in the United States from, from the ground up, which not many people know, obviously you two know, but we won't. We wouldn't have the 99ers if it wasn't for Anson Dorrance. We may not even have what we have today with the U.S. women's soccer team. So, phenomenal person, phenomenal coach, and and I didn't get a certificate. You know, I didn't get the. I don't know. I didn't get certified in UNC women's soccer, but I really feel like those two days that I spent with him were more valuable than a lot of formal education that I've had in the past. True, false. You played pickleball with Anson Dorrance. True. <laughs> uh, you so, know, it is interesting. Um, I just have to sort of add to how under the radar he is because I had never heard of him until Kelly read his book. And then, because of Rachel. And, and then he really, it piqued my interest because Kelly was laying in bed at light night reading this book and weeping, which isn't, you know, like a nightly occurrence for Kelly. And he's like, I don't understand. I'm reading this book about coaching and I'm just sitting here weeping. But he was, I mean, he really was weeping and it had such an impact on him. And once I learned more about who he was, I, I had the same thought, like, why is this guy not legendary. And, you know, I keep having these secret fantasies of just giving it to all my kids. Water polo coaches is like a secret gift, hoping they read it because I think there could be so much they learn from it. Let me jump in because one of Juliet's secret weapons that she learned from her mother, her mother, Janet, is a journalist. And Janet told Juliet a long time ago that if you pick up the phone and call, or if you show up in person You'd be surprised at the access and that people will take your call. But people are afraid. Like you, I mean, you have a unique skill set, but you have done this a lot. It's not like you show up unannounced. You're saying, can I come and observe? And you didn't show up to be part of the program. You just showed up to shut up and watch how practices run. I mean, I mean, honestly, that much. And then that's something that you do and really hammer on our daughters, Juliet, that like you can ask, that you can show up, that you can be a participant. I mean, this is one of your secret powers. Can you talk about a little bit of that, a little bit more about that? Well, actually, I mean, I have a story about you that you know, but you don't know, or maybe we've talked, I don't, I don't think we've actually talked about this really from this perspective. 
But I've done this so many times over the course of my career. It's one of the things I talk to the women that I mentor. It's like, buy a plane ticket. Oh, you're broke? I get it. Buy it anyway. Show up there. You would be so shocked at the access. You, you just said it. Janet's the wizard. She knew a long time ago. I'll tell the UN, finish up the UNC story. Basically, I did. I showed up to watch two practices, one of which got canceled because they had a mental wellness day. Whatever that means, you know, who cares about that? <laughs> so they had a mental wellness day. And then I, I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to watch one UNC women's soccer practice. And I was still happy to be there. And then, of course, I show up to practice. And then coach is like, what are you doing tonight? And I'm like, whatever you're doing. He's like, let's play pickleball, you know? So I show up and he throws me into pickleball. And then after pickleball, he's like, what are you doing after pickleball? I'm like, whatever you're doing. He's like, all right, great. I ride along with him to a women's professional soccer game. He's dropping me off the next, th- that night. And he's like, what are you doing tomorrow morning? I'm like, whatever you're doing coach, you know? So he just kept inviting me because I obviously, you know, you have to add value. And we had some great conversations, but you know, if I hadn't have done that, it's like what I would have emailed him some questions and he's like, uh, work hard, believe in yourself. Like what, you know, just showing up that I can't, I can't stress enough. And with you, I've done this so many times. I can't even list how many times I've done this, but with you, for example, I was in Amsterdam. I don't even know what time of year it was. must've been springtime. And you text me out of the blue and you're like, Hey, I think you said, Hey, how far are you from Munich? And I was like, I don't know, you know, but I was like close, what's up. And you were like, I'm going to be here for this conference, you know, whatever. And I literally like, I was so broke, Kelly. I was so broke. I mean, I was, I was on my way to completely depleting my entire life savings and maxing out my credit card. I was so broke. And I was like, do, do, do like how, okay. Plane ticket to Munich. Got it like hundred dollar Uber to get to the conference. Like, got it. Like, because why not? You know, I knew how much, how much value I could get from learning from you and being around you. And, you know, obviously then I got to go hiking in Bavaria. Like that's not bad either, but but it's like, I've done that so many times and I don't know how much money I've spent on it, but I can about guarantee you it's all paid off tenfold to do that, you know? And I think people, they say, well, I can't afford it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have kids. I don't have, you know, I, I don't have certain things, but honestly, like I have been broke, so I get it, but it's, it's, I view that as a learning experience. And if people have no problem dropping a thousand dollars on a conference or whatever, an online learning thing, it's like, well, why not just buy a plane ticket? You know, it's probably the same amount and you might get more out of it. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much to, I, I guess maybe the word for it is like experiential learning. I don't know if that's the way to describe it. But real networking. Yeah, yeah, like but you I mean, know real everyone. Real connecting with other humans and learning and just sitting around on the couch and having conversations. I mean, that's just priceless. So, And um, there is one more thing I want to say that really was kind of lost in there is that you show up ready to be a participant. There, I can think of a thousand times where like, oh, we're going to go train. And you're like, oh, what are we doing? I'm like, you'll be fine. And then we push the prowler for a mile or do some kind of horrible thing. And you're always, maybe not fit into your programming at that moment or what you're working on, but you're, you're sort of down, down to experiment, down to participate. And I think one of the things that I'm always trying to tell coaches is go take, go be a student again, right? Put yourself in a situation where you don't have any control or, or agency in terms of the programming or the situation and just participate. You know, and and I just want to give you know full credit that you do such a good job of that. And I've tried to break you a few times in the workouts, and I can't. <laughs> do you see how strong she is? <laughs> yes, she's I so know. Strong. I know. I'm she's like, so she strong. is so strong. Yeah, you cannot break her. I just want to uh, switch gears a little bit, Rachel, because I know that you've gotten really interested in thinking about organizational culture and 
talking about that. And so I just love to hear more about, you know, what you're thinking about, why you're interested in it, where your brain is. And how are we doing currently with organizational <laughs> culture? Are we killing it or not? <laughs> are you talking about we, like the ready state? <laughs> no, no, no. We are killing it. At the He's talking state. about we humanity, I think. I think even just professional organizations that you interact with. Yeah. Okay. So why do I think about it? Well, I, I think I'm, I've been genuinely interested in this since I was probably 15, but I didn't, I didn't know that I really had like this calling to do it in my career. So I kind of thought, oh, strength and conditioning. And it was a great way to start out. Strength and conditioning was wonderful to start out learning the body and and a, a bird's eye view kind of the organization um, in professional baseball. But now my goal is to be a general manager. And I say that because, for example, and I some strength coaches out there are going to be laughing. Some are going to be crying when I say this. But when you're a strength coach, you might be setting the culture in your you know hour that you have the players, but you're you're not setting the organizational culture, not even close. In fact, the athletic trainer is your boss, the physical therapist is your boss, nutritionist might be your boss. Oh, and by the way, all of the coaches are your bosses. And then you also have your actual boss. And then you have the, you, you have more or less are at the bottom of the totem pole. And if you are okay with that, then that's great. But I don't actually know a lot of coaches that are okay with that. So, so I guess my thought process, when I first moved to Amsterdam, I left strength and conditioning. I knew I wanted to be a general manager, but I, I'm not, I know this is going to come as a surprise to everyone, especially you two. I'm not taking the traditional path. The traditional path would be I go into scouting and I start sitting behind a computer and I stop working with the players and I, you know, basically get on a route to more of an analytics like office job. And instead I chose to do hitting because I'm a generalist by nature, but also I think a general manager could benefit from being a true generalist and understanding many facets of the business and many facets of, of development. So I went from strength and conditioning to hitting and I'm not sure where the next step will be, but it will be literally i'm i'm intentionally trying to pick up skills to become a general manager i'm wildly fascinated to answer kind of the second part of your question i'm wildly fascinated by the interactions between groups of people and especially for me in professional baseball we have the latin american players and we have american players and the distance between those two groups of humans is so large it's almost incomprehensible to think that they have to come together and work towards a common goal. And so I think that there's, yeah, okay, I'm a hitting coach and I've been a strength coach and yeah, I'm interested in those topics. And I've spent 10,000 hours coaching, you know, for sure. And, and maybe 10,000 in strength, strength and conditioning, I'm just starting over with hitting. But what really wakes me up in the morning is like, okay, this player and this player, they need to get along so that they can work better together on the field. So I need to put them together in this group. And then I need to design this practice so that they're communicating and they're working together for a common goal. And like, I think about practice design and cultural design more than I think about hitting for sure. For sure. Hopefully no one from the Yankees listens to this pod. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they can listen. They know this. <laughs> you took something from Anson Dorrance, which we have taken and talked a lot about, and I've talked about it with my girls, about knowing where you are in the program because practice matters and that you're gamifying practice. I think he calls it the competitive cauldron. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how you've actually applied it? Because I think a lot of coaches and people who are listening to this who might not even be in strength and conditioning field could use this idea in their own work. Can you talk about the competitive cauldron a little bit? 
I really, I seriously think you could use it. And it's, it's literally just human behavior. It's maximizing human behavior. So how do you get groups of people to work together to do something that is difficult, disliked, or just out of the norm? And that's the competitive cauldron in, in my eyes. Anson would probably describe it as making practice matter for soccer players. But I think you can apply that concept to just about anything. So you create these small societies. So the way that I've implemented it in baseball is within the group of athletes that I work with to get them to work together and to get them to kind of become better teammates to each other within that group, we create small societies. So we create teams. So for example, just this year, we created three teams and they were competing for points in practice. Now they were competing for points in the game, but they would do something in the game that would get them points for their team. They're like individual team within the team. Like a game within a game. The game within the game. So in practice, uh, for example, like we might do an exit velocity competition. So if whoever hits the ball the hardest gets points for their team, something like that. I mean, you could really, we assigned it to everything. We did something fun one day where we played ping pong and the winning, you know, the winning team for ping pong got points for their team. We totally switched it up. Points were, you, points were just added in at random, basically. We had some staples, but we put points on just about everything that we could. And we made it a game for them to work together. And the best thing about this is it's not just a game, right? It's when they were playing the actual baseball game. And then one, let's say one of the teammates hit a double or something, which was worth, I don't know, so let's say two points. They would, be, they would be cheering on the team. So one of the team names was Maniáticos, which is maniacs in Spanish. and they would be like, yeah, money ethicals, let's go points. And I had a board in the dugout where I would be giving points to their individual teams for their, for their individual like outcomes on the field. I think also it's important to mention how critical this is. But this is like, right, a, this mi- is like a game. This is a minor a game. league game against another organization. And the other organization, as you told it, is flat going through some preseason game and your athletes are yeah. going bananas for a because double. They're trying to get points for their sub team, which is amazing. The other team. And I will not, I try to not mention any names. You'll have to bleep it out. If I accidentally say it, the other team literally got upset and they were like, what are you, you know, like you guys are just showmen and you're just like trying to show us up. Cause we beat this team quite a bit, but they, they, they thought we were like taunting them almost because they were the kids were so loud cheering for each other. And again, to give some context, you might think, well, oh yeah, you work for the Yankees or you're in professional baseball. Like you might think, well, that's how it should be, right? But it just isn't, especially in minor league baseball where it's hard to describe, but basically wins don't matter, you know? So these kids get drafted and the next time that like wins really count and they really have to like work together as a team is in the big leagues. And for most players, that's five to seven years where they are just getting individually promoted or demoted and they're not, you know, they do care about their teammates over time because they get to know them, but it's really lost. You know, if they have a good game, they're happy for themselves and they don't really care if somebody else had a bad, a bad game because the win doesn't matter for them. So it was creating, it was making practice matter, but also making minor league games matter, making these kind of scrimmage games that where it's very quiet. Sometimes you can hear a pin drop, and they're just going crazy and cheering on their teammates and upping the intensity and upping the pressure for themselves. So that's just one example. But basically, it's creating these small societies and assigning points and having the, this external point board. So whatever that means to you in your setting, you know, out there having like a secondary point board where internally everybody can see it, but maybe the external, you know, you can't see the points outside of it, but it's. They, they care about that almost more than they do about the game. 
I think the other thing that I learned, and by the way, I actually haven't read his book, but I feel like I have because Kelly and I talk about it so much. <laughs> um, so I just, you know, caveat there. But and, and so if I if I don't, I feel like I've gone to law school. If I yeah, exactly. If I don't tell it exactly correctly, you'll understand why. But you know, I think so many athletes are bench players, right? And so many athletes, I mean, in youth mm. sports all the way up through professional sports. And I think if I'm understanding it correctly, one of the things Anson Dorrance does so well is make it really obvious to the bench players what they would need to do to get off the bench and simultaneously that the non-bench, the actual players are always like a little scared because they are always at any given time at risk of losing their spot. And I think that's actually, I mean, just because my my current vantage point is youth sports, that that's something that's like really lost. In youth sports, it's like they pick their six players and then their seven bench players and, and that know, never changes why. throughout the season. And the none of the players know why. The bench players don't know why they've been put on the bench or what they could do to get off the bench. And the players don't know why they've been chosen and what they would do to lose their spot. Or and, how to get better. Or how to get better. And so it's this weird dynamic. And once I learned this from Kelly, I was like, man, this is like, how is, how is every team not run like this? It's amazing. Inherently, thankfully, like from an individual standpoint, baseball, we have so many metrics. So they usually do, I mean, most of the time they actually do know why they aren't getting moved up or why they're not, why they are, they aren't getting moved up or down or whatever, because we have so many systems to measure like literally everything on their body and everything that they do performance wise in practice too. Does that go for in practice? Pretty much. So yeah, but you, you forget like in professional baseball, we play a game every single day. So they're getting metrics every single day, but to your point though, to raise the level of intensity and practices and, you know, things outside of the game, that's where the competitive cauldron can really help just about anyone. But yeah, that's, that's a principle that we kind of have. It's not the same. The competitive cauldron is not the same from the metrics that we get, because it's very, uh, there's no rewards or punishments, I guess you could say. So let's say a, this is, this is also why it's critical, why I think it's so valuable in professional baseball to create a competitive cauldron, because a guy could be performing extremely well and not get promoted because maybe he didn't sign for as much money or he's younger and they want him to stay there. And then he sees his friends, you know, getting promotions and there's not there's the reward and the punishment system is not clear. So as a player that signed for a lot of money who the organization wants to move up, and this is not just the Yankees, this is obviously every team, a player that signed for a lot of money, he might move up faster than somebody who's doing better than him. So that's very convoluted. Why and it's why I think it's even more critical for us specifically in professional baseball, where it's not really fair where there can be a place where they know how they're getting points and they know how they're getting rewards and they know how they're, you know, when they lose, like it's the dynamic is pretty murky when you think about playing time in professional sports in general, but in baseball for sure as well. But in youth sports, like, no, this is to your point, Julie, I think it's pretty clear cut. They absolutely should be keeping like points in practice so that there is no question. Okay. So-and-so is getting more playing time than me. What can I do to improve? And by the way, I saw the board when I went to UNC and the girls go right up to it at practice and they're looking at their numbers, you know, and like, it's not in the book. He mentions like this, this could be taboo, right? Because there are obviously girls who are at the bottom of the list who haven't gotten the points could be taboo. It could be, it could hurt their feelings, but I would argue it hurts their feelings more if there's ambiguity. So I'm sure like you're saying in youth sports, they don't know why. And that's really painful. But if it was clear cut and they had direction, it, I mean, it's so much easier. 
Oh, it's so much easier and, to and be able to say, hey, look, like you aren't actually ever scoring any points if that was one of you the metrics. You never take any shots. Never take any or shots. You, or every shot you take, you miss. Yeah, like if th- that would be an obvious metric. Like you could say to any kid in any sport, like you never attempted to take a shot, so you're you at the missed, bottom of the list. You missed whatever. every pass you made. I mean, like those, <laughs> I mean, those things. One of the things I really love about that is it actually teaches people to be good teammates too. You can actually root for someone else's success, which doesn't happen a lot, in, especially in professional sports where everyone is so worried about being vulnerable, about giving any of that power away. And I think that happens in culture around business too. I, I just, that piece of play and, you know, Juliet's on my team or today Juliet's on my team. And I, because her success is my success, it buoys all boats. Let me ask you this. You said you felt like you were a generalist and I know what that means. What does that mean for you? Because I'll give you an example. When you said, I went to Amsterdam to get a master's degree, you went in Amsterdam and got a master's degree in sports monitoring, which is, for me, death. Like, the worst thing I could think of. Like, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Amsterdam and have all my teeth pulled out. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> to get this other... Like, I hate all of that. I'm so glad other people are into, like, organic chemistry and sports monitoring. I benefit from it. But can you talk about how you became a generalist and what that means to you? Because I think, let me give one more example. Juliet is really competent at being CEO because she's an athlete, she's a user, she's a mom, she's in a bunch of other businesses, she runs this business. You know, I mean, there's like so many diverse exposures that Juliet has that she doesn't hyper-specialize and become myopic. Can you tell what a generalist means to you? Yeah, just so you know, being in Amsterdam was pulling teeth for me. So it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like, let me correct. Let me. I know that was true. Yeah, I know. Like, I let true. me correct the it's record. True. Let me correct the yeah. Yeah, I did not like studying physics and neuroscience, and I think I've forgotten all of it already. Of course, but that that was a play actually to become more general. But it's really hard to like be that laser focused on one subject for that long for me. But basically, how did I, I think like original question was, how did I become a generalist? I honestly, I don't know, but I've always been so curious about other cultures since I was young. I mean, since I was little, I, I sometimes attribute this to actually my father uh, worked for American Airlines for 35 years, retired, and we were very, very middle-class, but we got to travel more than the average family maybe because we had free flights. I grew up in Nebraska, but I just got exposed. And at the time it was just different areas of the country, right? So I could fly different areas, obviously playing sports and playing softball really competitively, traveling all over the country, moving to New Mexico right away when I graduated. So like, I've so, I've been so curious about other cultures. Like I've always kind of had this curious nature about me, but applying that to like a career is when I got into strength and conditioning, it's like I, within strength and conditioning, right? I went to EXOS and did my internship, which was at at the time, uh, it was athlete's performance, but it was super functional, super like movement before movement was cool. And I think it was probably when you were starting to get cool, I'm not sure. And then I went to LSU and I learned Olympic weightlifting, which is like, you know, the antithesis of, of like mobility people, you know, usually. And so I was like, I had this meathead side of me and I had this movement side of me and like everything in between. Like I've always wanted to be good at many things, which by the way, stops me from being phenomenally great at one thing. And I'm totally okay with that. So no surprise as a strength coach, I was always popping into pitching meetings and hitting meetings and front office meetings and scouting meetings and trying to learn like the whole picture so that I could be better at my job as a strength coach. But in reverse, as you mentioned with Juliet, what I think is going to make me hopefully a better candidate for to be a general manager is the fact that I'll have strength and conditioning, hitting, probably scouting, 
operations. I'll have done all of these things. So when I'm evaluating all these apartments, I have many tools and not just one really great one. It's a life philosophy and it's a, it's a professional philosophy too, because I think it just makes you more well-rounded and able to do maybe a better job and definitely more jobs for sure. So this is a, a bit of a departure from what we've been talking about, but I must know. And I, I want to preface this by saying, I know that you were a D1 softball player and maybe this is the answer why, but why baseball? Why did you go into baseball of all, you know, you were a strength and conditioning coach. It certainly could have been, you know, women's soccer or any other, I mean, you know, any sport. Why baseball? Was it because of your softball background? That's my A question and I'll let you take it before I ask my B question. I think this is going to be a little longer than you want, but I'll like baseball to me was wildly fascinating because of the actual structure of professional baseball. So when I was going through my master's degree, so I was just out of my undergrad, some of my friends had been drafted to play professional baseball. And I didn't know what that means because most, not even baseball fans know what that means. That means you get like put into the minor league system and then you grind away for five to six years, you know, and you become this lost boy where you, you don't really have any friends back home anymore, but then you get spit out five years later, your degree's useless. You're just, and they, by the way, in strength and conditioning, they were working out at the local YMCA on the road and eating hot dogs before games. And I was hearing all these stories and I was like, what in the hell is going on over there? <laughs> like I need to, and I was at LSU, which at the time, like everyone was kicking ass. It was just this electric, crazy culture. And it was a blast. And I was like, what is going on in professional baseball? And even if I read my first ever cover letter that I set out to get an internship with the St. Louis Cardinals, it says, I want to move baseball forward. So I've always had this idea of making baseball better and creating a more forward-thinking environment and making it better for minor league players and providing better care to minor league players as they go through their journey. So from the get-go, it's really always been about making change and improving the business of professional sports. At the time, that was for me saying, I want to move strength and conditioning forward in the sport of professional baseball. So that was a part of it. Once I got on my, once I got a little bit down my path and so I'll say right after I graduated from LSU, you know, I had just been at LSU as a GA. So I got like within the year, I got, I think, eight different division one schools reaching out to me, like you said, and offering women's sports jobs. And I was like, I don't even know how in my young self I understood this, but I was like, every time I got on the phone, I was like, I'll consider this job if you add in a male sport, because I knew what my future looked like if I was working with only women's sports at the time. It definitely has changed a little bit, but not much. Your salary is a quarter of what men's sports are going to be. The The path is just not as good. It's just not, it, it has changed. There are some opportunities that have, that have taken shape, but I just knew, and I kept getting all these calls for women's sports. And I was like, wait a second, I've already worked with a bunch of men. Why can't I work with men? Meanwhile, I wanted to get in professional baseball. And I knew at the time I had already been discriminated against heavily and been told that I was being discriminated against outright. I knew if I didn't have continue to have men's sports on my resume, I couldn't get into baseball. So I kind of along the way got this chip on my shoulder and was like, well, I have to do this because if I don't do it and I have a great resume, when's the next woman going to come along with a better resume than me that can handle this job? So I kind of just was like learning the way of the world and it became like my mission to get into professional baseball at some point. So I have a quick sub story about that. Our neighbor who lives four doors up from us was a professional baseball player. 
but only ever in the minors. And I had no idea how baseball worked until I met him. And I, I think I asked him something like, well, were you like a semi-professional baseball player? Like, I didn't really understand. He's like, no, no, no. I was a full professional baseball player. I just never made it out of the minors. And I was like, okay, so I'm one of those people who had no idea. And I think there's many of me. And then my next question, which by the way, fascinating story and and makes so much sense to me why you were like, wait, why can't I work with men? And then, you know, now obviously we know that you are a hitting coach at the Yankees, but why hitting, like, why did you go strength and conditioning hitting coach versus, you know, other specialties? And is one better than the other? <laughs> oh my God. Being a hitting co- coach for me is so much more fun than being a strength coach, to be honest with you. <laughs> so much more fun. You know, it's so much more fun to do things with people who want to be there. You know, guys come into the cages and, you know, I've, I've already got the music cranked up. So they come in the cages, they're like dancing, they're having fun. They want to hit, they want to hit extra. They want to be there, right? Nobody wants to run conditioning, usually. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to do these uncomfortable things. So just that alone is, is honestly, it's been a huge eye opener for like how much more effective I can be with coaching or anyone can be with coaching when people really want to be there. Why hitting? So when I left strength and conditioning, or what I should say, when I left uh, 2018, the organization I was with, I wasn't exactly sure, but I had a great mentor. I'm going to credit Dylan Lawson, who's my current boss with the Yankees. I had, like I said, popped into hitting meetings, popped into pitching me. I was all over the place, right? If I had a free spot on my schedule, I was not sitting in the office. I was like in a meeting somewhere else, listening to our other professionals in our organization be awesome because they were. And Dylan Lawson was one of them. And I had, he exposed me basically to eye tracking um, and pitch recognition for hitters. And I, as a college softball player, hadn't even heard of that concept. You know, like why would your brain and your eyeballs be important for hitting a ball that's moving hundred miles an hour? I don't know. Makes no sense. Uh, yeah. It makes <laughs> no sense. So I, I had never even heard of that concept and he just like blew my mind with the information. And not only that, but he was feeding me research articles. So when I moved to Amsterdam, I knew my degree uh, I knew it was going to be in basically it's human movement sciences, Kelly's absolute nightmare. And then uh, <laughs> on top of that, I kind of had an idea I'd be doing research and eye tracking for hitters. So I thought, I thought hitting coach was possible, but again, I mean, you guys know this, but the climate was, there were no women hitting coaches. So I was like, well, if I can't be a hitting coach, I'll prepare myself as if I'm going to be a hitting coach, but I could also go into scouting from that perspective. I could probably get into some kind of analytics or sports science for sure. But I didn't. I just didn't even know if it was possible for, for me to get a hitting coach job. So I was leaving the door open, and then also again in, in my future, just thinking like going hitting and not something else was. I wanted to get closer to on-field evaluation with players, so that in the future I can be a better evaluator of players and I can be a better evaluator evaluator of coaches of players in an administrative role. I talk about with Georgia, even Caroline, being able to play everywhere and being valuable to the organization. That if your coach wants you to go you know, jump into goalie. You're like, okay, coach, it's not your dream, but you can do it. And the coach is like, oh, I always have this person who can do any job, anytime. And one of the things I want to point out is that there is a an aspect of when people hear generalism, sometimes they think dilettantism, that you just dabble. You don't dabble. Like you go deep nerd in, in these verticals and become very, very competent before you kind of realize what the next piece is. So, you know, shout out to that big time. Rachel, you are writing a book. You're in between being us smashing glass ceilings in professional sports. You are working on your mentorship program. There's a lot of work in there. 
what are you excited about? Where are you going? What's the next thing you're sort of like the next sort of ideation? What are, what are you chewing on? What's got you excited? You just listed all of it. <laughs> that's that's your day job. I want to know what's going on besides the day job. <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, you know what? I think it's important to talk about these things. And I probably just made myself sound like a workaholic or something. But but I, I take sabbaticals, so I'm not, clearly not a workaholic. So I'm excited about being able, to, I've crested a point in my career, I think, to, develop, to uh, devote more time to relationships. And I have a relationship right now. I'm in a relationship. And I've just like... I think I realized, especially as a woman in the field, how difficult that was and how I was really unable to do that earlier. And so I, I've come to finally, this is, I'm 12 years in, I guess, 10 years into professional baseball and I have a relationship and I'm really excited about that. And I'm actually in Santa Barbara to, to be with this person. And it's like, I think that uh, as coaches and probably a lot of people that are listening to this podcast can relate to this as we want to spend all this time to develop, you know, our careers and our knowledge. And, you know, we also have to carve out time to develop our personal side of things. So I think that's probably actually immediately on my mind right now. I'm not sure if that's what you were looking for, but that's what I'm thinking about. Heck yeah. I, I tell you what, I, I can say that, you know, I've just been grinding alone. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, what, I'll, what I'll tell you is that none of this exists without my family and, you know, figuring out a way to work that in is, is really tricky. I think you really are giving voice to the fact that there's certainly a double standard for women that I've perceived. And definitely anyone who's creating something, the thing that gets you here is not the thing that keeps you here. You know, I'm, I observe all of my male colleagues in baseball having kids, you know, and their wives taking care of their kids while they have these crazy careers where they can't breathe and they work for 12 hours a day. And people will make comments like, oh, Rachel, you know, you need to have kids. And I'm like, that's cool. Where would they be? You know, like where is <laughs> your wife takes care of your kids, you know, and I, I don't have that, or, you know, and I probably it's less likely it's not impossible. It's less likely that I will have that. And I'm 34 and I don't mind saying that my age is like I'm 34. So you consider those things and it's really you can't go back. So trying to navigate that. I think we're in a much better position to start asking for maternity leave, you know, and it's something that I'm going to, I'm not even planning on having kids, but it's like, wait, I don't even have maternity leave if I needed it. So what would I, you know, because, because guys don't, guys don't have babies. So it's just not in the contracts for professional baseball coaches. So you didn't have a locker room in some of the organizations you've worked with. Yeah. Just until the Yankees actually, no women's locker room, which I think that's changing a lot, but it's funny. Like I, yeah, for, I guess, seven years of my career, I didn't have a locker room. And even the organization I worked for previously, which this is actually not against them. It's literally just like representative of all the organizations at the time, but 2017, they were building a $20 million brand new facility. And I was touring it before it was finished. And I said, where's the women's locker room? And they were like, uh, we don't have one. And I was like, you're building a brand new facility and I am a current employee. And it's really not against that organization. It's more so like they, that was the mindset even four years ago. So I showed up to the Yankees. They have a full women's locker room. There's two nutritionists, uh, two sports science professionals that are women. They were kind of like, oh yeah, like you're the last, you're like old news. Like we've got a women's locker room. It's all set up. So <laughs> things have changed. I, I'm so glad I've stuck around to see so much positive change. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I never would have imagined this in 2012, you know? 
Well, and also I think um, I'm old now, so I can say this because you think this when you're old, but you realize when you're old that change is incremental. And so I think sometimes we want it to be immediate gratification, right? So I think if you went into baseball expecting, you know, in six months to deep organizations to make these immediate changes to accommodate you, you already would have left the sport, right? So it's awesome that, you know, you sort of appreciated like these incremental changes will happen and you stuck around and are actually starting to see that now. And I think that's so cool. Believe it or not, there's a Dune quote here. <laughs> oh, shocker. Oh, my God. The slow blade penetrates the shield. <laughs> One last thing before we, we let you go off to continue sabbaticaling that I'd appreciate. And maybe the word for it is goals, but I appreciate that you've said a few times, like, my goal is to be a general manager, you know, because I do think there's something to say for just putting that out there into the universe. And another word for it, which I think is kind of funny, is manifesting. So there's just something about saying it, right? You're saying it out loud. See your future, be your future. Um, See your future, be your future. Whatever it is, I think it's cool that you're saying it out loud because I have no doubt it will happen. Thank you. Rachel, you were my first coach friend on TikTok. I just want to give you a shout out for that. You and Manny in uh, Australia, you're, we were all like, I don't know about TikTok. And then you were like, I'm going to TikTok. I'm going to let all these people know. So uh, besides being another trendsetter by embracing the kids and TikTok, where can we find you on the social webs? You got to go where the, where your the kids are. You know, like I need to connect with young people who are eventually going to come to baseball games when I'm a general manager, and so that's where it's at. I'm getting better at that day by day. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, basically, if you can spell my last name, you can find me. It's I think at Rachel on Instagram, Rachel underscore on Twitter, maybe, and rachelbalkovec.com. So good luck spelling Balkovec, but that's where you can find me. Well, we'll link to all that in the show notes, so we'll make it easy for people. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, we really, it's such a pleasure to see your face and chat. Thank you, friends. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time. Cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop.